Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Life Lessons Podcast with me, Simon Mundy. This podcast has a simple mission, to have discussions that reveal something important about life and how best to live it. My guests range from the biggest sporting names on the planet through to neuroscientists, philosophers, psychologists and world-renowned thinkers. We talk about things like how to skillfully relate to uncomfortable thoughts and feelings, the power of acceptance and psychological flexibility, how to get your circadian rhythms in sync to feel your best, right through to the nature of reality. These conversations and the bite-sized episodes have the power to change your life. How confident are you at standing up and giving a speech or presentation? Do you consider yourself to be a good conversationalist at work, while socialising or at home? And how do other people view your conversation skills? And what are you like at getting your key points across in interviews? Now, communicating what we want to say for maximum impact is far from easy. It's also not something many people work on. But Roz Atkins, creator of the hugely successful viral BBC videos Roz Atkins On, is truly a master of the craft. And in this episode, he shares some of the key techniques and outlooks that make him stand out. Roz has identified the 10 elements of what makes a good explanation, as well as the seven steps you need to take to communicate what you want to say with clarity and impact. And we dissect them in this conversation. Now, Roz has written an outstanding new book called The Art of Explanation, How to Communicate with Clarity and Confidence, which is highly recommended Further reading. And the lessons that we talk about in this episode are applicable in any area of life. So brace yourselves for some absolutely golden nuggets from one of the BBC's master communicators. Roz, I'm delighted you could join me. How are you? All right. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Uh, congratulations on your fantastic book, The Art of Explanation. Sincerely, absolutely loved it. I gobbled this up with a spoon. Did you? 
Did any of it feel familiar? It's funny you say that because I've known you for a while, the best part of a decade. And about 10 years ago, when you were building outside source within the BBC, you very kindly took some of us Radio 1 news and sports journalists and taught us some of your tricks and tools and techniques. Some of the things that you taught me that really stuck in my mind, I was delighted to see them pop up in here. There you go. So listen, let's dive in because so, it's a Bible of explanation and communication. So we've got so much to get through. The first question is, why is this important? It's important because in the fabric of all of our lives is communication. Whether it's the smallest moments, a two-minute conversation in the, in the office or a, a one-line email, all the way up to the biggest moments in our working lives, such as uh, big speeches or a job interview or important conference panel or whatever it might be. Communication runs through all of this. And it's a simple equation. The more attention we pay to it, the better we'll be, the better we'll be, the more likely it is that people understand what we're trying to pass on and understand what we're hoping they might do in return. And so when you start thinking about it in those terms, it's it's fundamental, regardless of what line of work you do, regardless of the circumstances in which you're working. It's easy to think, is it not, that it's either something you're good at or not? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't assume that I'm good at it at all. Every day I'm thinking about, well, how did that go? And could I do this better? And I'm keeping an eye out for people I see communicating well and thinking, okay, they did that. Maybe I could try using this. It's a work in progress. And, you know, sometimes I'll talk to people and they'll say, well, you seem so confident talking up in front of a big crowd of people or something. And I'll say, well, first of all, what you don't know is that 10 minutes ago, I was feeling quite nervous about this. And I did a couple of things to make me feel a little better about that. But also that I didn't always feel so comfortable standing up in front of lots of people. And that the fact that I do to lesser or greater extents now is because I've spent a lot of time thinking about it and working at it. So, you know, my experience when I encounter lots of people who have managed to take their chosen craft, their chosen passion to a certain level, once you get chatting to them, almost, almost always, whether it's sport or business or journalism or presentation, it'll turn out they've spent ages thinking about it and ages practicing it. And so my my feeling on this is that it's not something that anyone can't do. It's it's something that I work at. And I think that if other people work at it, they'll be able to do it just as well. Let's break it down as you've done so cleverly in the book. You've identified 10 elements for a good explanation. And then you have also identified seven steps to express yourself with clarity. So let's just dive through them all bit by bit, pick out some of the key bits, rattle through them. And also just to give it a bit of context, this works for whether it's a, a speech, a presentation, so you're in full control, a dynamic situation, something fluid, you know, being stopped, having to have a chat where you don't know how things are going to go, interview. And you've even tailored it right through to the modern form of digital communication, email, text and all that. So it covers every single, every single area. Right. So let's do the 10 elements. Simplicity. This is key. Simplicity is, is absolutely key because in the end, if you want people to understand you, if you give them the information you're trying to pass on in its simplest form, that's going to give you your best chance. And so I spend a lot of time when I'm thinking about communicating, whether it's emails or being on the TV or making our explainer videos about how can I take the essential information that I want to include and present it in its simplest form? Because for me, the equation is pretty straightforward. The simpler the form the information is in, the easier it is to consume, the easier it is to understand, and the easier it is to act on. And that's an equation that you want to pay attention to. 
And short words in short sentences are good. They're very good because, again, we want things to be simple to, to consume. And if you want them to be simple to consume, the words within what you're saying need to be as simple as possible. And then short sentences are easier to consume than longer ones because within each sentence, there's less information. And there's one, again, reasonably straightforward equation, but it's worth keeping in mind. The more information that you send in someone's direction, the more you're asking of them. And so if you are describing things in the simplest form, using the simplest words, in the simplest sentences, that's going to make it easier for them to consume because in part it gives them less to take in and, and process. And being disciplined about this is really, really important because especially when we're not thinking clearly, we tend to clutter our communications with additional words and additional information. And when you reach a moment of real clarity on a subject, it often will give you the confidence to start removing a lot of that clutter and leave you with what matters most. In terms of removing that clutter, I enjoyed you talking about your epiphany around obstacles to comprehension. Yes. You were in some seminar, weren't you? And someone said this and it was the penny drop. It wasn't even that. It was a, it's, an, it's a training course in the BBC archive made by our, uh, my esteemed colleague, Alan Little, who's an you know, incredible correspondent and journalist. And I was watching this archive because I'm a huge fan of Alan, so I need no second invitation to, to listen to him and learn from him. And halfway through the first video in this training course, he uses this phrase, obstacles to comprehension. Now, at first I was like, what's he, what's he getting at? And then I realized that he was making a very fundamental point, which is that, and I've made it to some extent already myself just now, which is that within our communications, we feel like everything we're saying and doing is working towards the purpose of the communication, you know, explaining something or asking for something. But actually, we fill our communications with things that aren't just neutral, but are actively working against the success of your piece of communication. So in a news context, if I was trying to tell you about uh, a military decision taken by a country and I was going through the new policy and the actions within that, and I started listing a number of different cabinet ministers in this country, which I was describing to you, Quite possibly you don't need to know all those cabinet ministers' names in order to understand the significance of the policy. And I used to be a bit more relaxed about that and think, well, if they're in there, no matter. And if they, you know, it didn't seem to me like the biggest thing. And after listening to Alan, I was like, no, those cabinet ministers' names are actively asking more of who I'm talking to, which in turn means the chance of them understanding the stuff that really matters goes down. And so I slightly adapted Alan's phrase. He says obstacles to comprehension. I say obstacles to understanding, but it's the same point which is when you start spotting them, you suddenly see them everywhere. And at the time when I saw this archive training course, I was just getting going on Outside Source. And Outside Source, for people listening who don't know it, used to have these quite long and very detailed sequences on stories, which might contain 30 or 40 or 50 elements within them. And if you're doing that, you can't afford additional pieces of information competing. It becomes too cluttered and, and lacking in clarity. And so I suddenly started hunting down every time I could turn three words into two, I would do it. Every time I could remove a piece of information without undermining the telling of the story, I'd do it. And you might think, well, that seems quite granular, but there's a cumulative effect. And if we remove as many obstacles to understanding as we can, even in a five minute video, you might be able to remove 10, 15, 20 things the cumulative effect is that you give yourself more space for the stuff that matters 
and you give your communication additional clarity. Something that comes to mind is I remember doing an interview with someone, a fascinating subject, and he suddenly dropped the word parsimonious into it. Right. And I remember thinking, I don't know what that means. Yeah. And in hindsight, just by saying what parsimonious does mean would have made it so much easier. And so that is the question that you ask at the end of that bit is, is this the simplest way I can say this? And parsimonious wouldn't be the way to say it. And parsimonious wouldn't be. And But there's another thing that comes from this, which is also not a good outcome, which is that if you say parsimonious to a group of people who won't know what parsimonious means, not only have you, you're not, un, you're not explaining yourself clearly because they haven't understood it, but also you're sending a message to them that you're not taking care to use language that they understand. And people don't welcome that. If you, you're sending a message, this isn't for you. And one of the greatest threats to any communication that we might do is when the people we're communicating with feel this isn't for me. Now, that can take lots of different forms. But one form it can take is using language that people don't understand or jargon that people don't understand or making references to concepts that people don't know. It's not their problem that they don't know. It's your problem that you're referencing it. And if you leave it in, you're going to send a message to them that what you're communicating isn't for them. And if they conclude that, your chances of them continuing to stay engaged plummet. You're toast. Moving on, essential detail. What detail is essential? Can you do this in your usual eight seconds or so? By about eight seconds, but this is a simple question. You've already established what you're trying to communicate, whatever it might be. Could be something simple, could be something much bigger and more complex. But whatever it is, you've said, okay, this is the purpose of what I'm doing. And then ask yourself, do I need to include this information in order to achieve that? Or to flip it round, try getting rid of it and think, if I got rid of this information, would I still be able to achieve whatever it is I'm trying to achieve? And that is a really useful question, because if you keep asking it of every piece of information you have, you end up splitting out perfectly interesting but not essential information, and you end up with the stuff that really matters, and then that gets the VIP treatment. Complexity. And the question here is, are there elements that I don't understand? So you often have to talk about very complex political, geopolitical situations. And it's asking yourself, OK, what don't I understand about this? Because if I don't understand it, they're going to be able to smell it a mile off. There you go. You've, 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 you've taken the words out of my mouth, really, which is that if you don't understand, there's a very good chance that the people you're speaking to won't understand. And it's your job to make that trip to that journey to being to understanding the subject better so complexity and simplicity can look like they're kind of in competition because you might think the easiest way to simplify something is to remove all the complexities but that's not my reading of it at all what the challenge here is is to take those complexities understand them and then explain them in simple and consumable ways and if you don't do that a number of things will happen and none of them are good um, you'll avoid a key part of a subject just because you can't face the complexity of it. You wouldn't want to do that. Um, if you're talking about it or taking questions on it, you'll be aware you don't understand it. And that can undermine your confidence across the board. I don't want to be on the TV talking about a, a broad story and knowing that if one aspect of it comes up, I'm in trouble because I can't explain it. I don't want that feeling. So understanding the complexities will increase your confidence there. There's a third benefit. It will also make your decision-making better. If you understand a complexity, you can decide whether to include it or not. Um, so those are three benefits, and really the benefits go on and on. So what I try and do with complicated stories is I hone in on what I don't feel comfortable on. So I'm doing the reverse of what you might think. I'm not 
gravitating towards where I do feel comfortable. I'm looking for where I feel discomfort and then trying to work through why I don't feel comfortable expressing myself on this subject and then working to put that right. So working backwards, if you don't understand a complexity, you can't decide whether it is essential. There you go. And on that, get help, either by searching online or by talking to someone if that's a possibility. But the best way, you know, in the case of, I think I give this example in the book, when I was doing the Greek debt crisis in 2015, uh, I was working with a brilliant business colleague of ours, Joe Lynham. And each morning when I had like yet more complexities of this story to try and explain, I'd say, Joe, I'm going to try and explain the new decision by the European Central Bank this way. And I'd say it to him and he would either go, yeah, you've got it. Or he'd say, actually, you need to put a bit more emphasis here and a bit a little less there. And I would have another go at it. And so that kind of to and fro will help you get to the point where you think, actually, if this complexity comes up, that's fine. And then... The next word that sprung out at me in particular was efficiency. As someone who tends to drone on a little bit, <laughs> asking yourself, is this the most succinct way I can say this is such a valuable question. And this is something I'm going to bear in mind. I think so. Look, there's different circumstances in which talking in different ways can, can work perfectly well. But in the terms of pure professional communication, I'm working on the basis that no one's got enough time. Everyone's got too much information coming at them. So if you give me a minute of your time, whether it's to read an email or listen to me give a speech or watch one of my videos, at the very least, I'm going to make sure you get a lot in return. And that's where efficiency uh, comes into the equation. I want to deliver this information that I think is valuable to you as efficiently as possible. So you get a reward for your time that you feels that you feel is a good reward for and that's why you coined the phrase, uh, is it high protein news? High protein news. Yeah. Yeah. That was a phrase I, I coined. Um, yeah. That's what I was trying to, with outside source and with our videos, that is precisely what we're aiming for. And avoiding that propensity to rush, to cram, to jettison and just ask yourself, is this the most succinct way I can say this? Let's, let's really emphasize that. I'm not talking about saying two, two minutes worth of information in one minute. That's not, the, that's not the route to efficiency. Efficiency is simple languages, removing obstacles to understanding, making clever choices about what to include and what not to include. It's not about rushing through. Speaking of rushing through, number five, precision. Being surgical, as you've been through this book, I really noticed that. Am I saying exactly what I want to communicate? What have you got to say on this? This one, you might be listening and thinking, this is so obvious. Why do they need to include this? But actually, quite often, we don't say precisely what we think we're saying or what we'd like to say. You know, sometimes I'll be in the newsroom and we'll be looking at a section and I'll be saying, what I'm trying to get across is this. And my dear colleagues will just look back at me and go, well, that might be your aspiration, but it's not what we're hearing. And the words I've got don't quite match the aspiration. And so for me, being really precise and um, conscious about the words that we're using to get across the most important points is crucial. And often when I feel a script of mine or a speech of mine or whatever it may be, a book in the case of this, isn't quite hitting the mark, I go back to it and I realize that the words I've assembled aren't quite saying precisely what I would like to get across. And so that's what this is about. I went back after reading the book and watched a couple of your Ros Atkins on explainers, those viral videos that have been huge success. Yeah. I really noticed this amongst a few other things, but I think this was the, the thing I noticed. Not a single word is used without intention and clarity and precision. Context. Adding context to what you're talking about, 
asking yourself that question. Why is this important? Why is what am I talking about now relevant to the people who are listening? So you often talk about foreign news, let's say, and it's about saying, okay, why should someone here care about what's happening over there? How do I link the two? Exactly. All information, all events coming at us, uh, all the information around us is relevant to us because of context. Not all uh, information matters equally to all of us. Of course, if there is a flood on one street, of course, the context is if it's the street next to where you live, Simon, it's particularly relevant. If it's 10 miles away, you're probably not as tuned into it. And in lots of different ways, context is what gives the communications we're making urgency. But because of the fact that often we're passing on information that's just happened or uh, requests that have to be made you know, immediately, we tend to concentrate on the immediate information with good reason. But it's the context that gives that immediate information added impetus. So just a small example, if you went to the doctors and said, uh, you know, I'm getting sharp pains in my ankle, it would be relevant that you've actually been having sharp pains in your ankle for three years since a really bad tackle in football. That would all be relevant to the doctor. If you were just saying, oh, I've just got a painful ankle, but didn't provide that, the doctor wouldn't be able to make as full an assessment. Or if you're, I don't know, working in sales and you're saying, well, our sales are worth one million this year and you're talking at a conference, of course, the people at the conference can't judge it unless they know what your sales were last year or the year before. That's context. In news, you're right. It's about saying this has happened in this country and it matters in and of itself, but it particularly matters because of the regional consequences of that event. So for me, prioritizing context and making space for it when it's getting edged out by the more immediate demands of what we're communicating is is really worth it. While I was reading your book, I was also uploading a podcast conversation to YouTube. And the next point, number seven, again, was a slap around the face for me because it was with a guest of mine who I was really delighted to be speaking to. Let's just put it this way. You could tell how delighted I was by the amount that my eyebrows and mouth was moving. And I was like, oh my goodness, that is so distracting. So again, since reading this, I've been thinking, okay, Simon, you've got to learn to keep that face of yours a bit more poker face style. So no distractions is is the next one we're talking about because in the end, whenever we're communicating, we want people focused on what it is that we're passing on. Now, there are additional things we can do, whether they might be hand gestures or you might be showing something behind you, which can support what you're saying. But what we don't want are things that take people's mind away from the issue in hand. So I haven't seen the video you're talking about, but it sounds like you're worried that people might be looking at your face rather than listening to the words of your guest. It's funny you're saying that. I remember when I came across from TV, from radio to TV, as a radio presenter, I was quite animated in the studio and I felt like it helped me present in a more engaging way. And then I went on the TV and watched a couple of things back and, and I was like, what's going on with my eyebrows? My eyebrows are just going up and down and up and down. And and sometimes a couple of colleagues went, looking quite cross at one stage and my eyebrows are really kind of furrowed up when I was concentrating and then other times they were going up and down and I actually had to teach myself to just calm all of that down I didn't want to be a statue but it was proving distracting so there are lots and lots and lots of different forms of distraction and I get into quite a few of them in the book but the general principle holds that when you're communicating you want people focused on the communication itself and not distracted by anything else. 
So you've mastered the art of the eyebrow twitch as well, Ros. Your commitment to your art knows no limits. It's remarkable. Well, I don't know about mastered it. I just, I got them in control. So I was watching a video earlier, someone talking about flow. Really interesting subject. And they were doing what you talk about in terms of using supporting visuals and stuff like that. And the visuals they were using were definitely relevant. But what I found was there was just too many of them. Felt like it was a bit busy. So it's obviously an art to... First of all, stripping back what you don't need, whether it be smiles or eyebrows or whatever. But if you're adding that supporting stuff, even if it is relevant, even if you're putting it in at the right time, it's about the art of getting just the right amount as well. Because you don't want to swamp that. You don't. And part of that is about another section of the book, which is about knowing your audience. Because one audience will be able to take a lot more animation and a lot more visual elements coming at them than others. So it's partly about people's tastes. We don't all inherently have one level of uh, visual input that we can cope with so what you were watching might have been a bit much for you but maybe there was someone else who could who could take it in the 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 rule i follow is a relatively simple one but it's helpful which is i only show things that directly support what i'm saying at that moment and at that precise moment and at that precise moment and that is a, for me is a really good guide if what i'm showing you directly supports the words i'm saying great if in any way it makes people feel hurried or overwhelmed or distracted, then I then I get rid of it. Um, and sometimes that can mean a thousand and one slides in a presentation. Sometimes I gave a couple of long speeches in the last week or so, 40, 30, 40 minutes and didn't use any slides at all. I just stood in front of people and calculated that I hoped that I could say things that were sufficiently interesting. That was enough. Talking of saying things that are sufficiently interesting... That leads us neatly on to the next one, which is about being engaging. And that's about asking yourself, are there moments when the attention can waver? And I don't want you to talk too much about the dial test. I'll just quickly give a, my take on it, which is just that when people would be listening to a radio program, controllers or whoever else would get people listening to have this dial. And if they enjoyed what they were hearing, they would turn it right. And if they didn't, they'd turn it left. Yeah. And then through that, they would get an idea of which bits were sagging, essentially. Yeah. And you want to avoid that sag. Yes, you do. Because... And this is something that, uh, you know, podcast presenters, radio presenters, TV presenters know very well, which is that if a part of your uh, broadcast or podcast wanes a bit, it doesn't really matter how good the rest of it is because the, the listener or viewer is gone. And that is a very, very stark reality if you're on live radio or live TV or if you're making a video, which is where I spend most of my time these days. And so... I'm always looking for the weak link because sometimes, you know, we are only as good. Our communication is only as good as the weak link. And if you can spot them and improve them or remove them, that's what makes things really powerful, where you can start with something that engages people and take them step by step by step through whatever it is that you're talking to them about. And the thing you want to watch out for is there were, I don't know, if you were giving a, a talk to a bunch of colleagues and you had five elements of what you wanted to say but the third bit was really wordy not quite as focused not quite as urgent not quite as relevant leaving that third element in risks the fourth and the fifth which are more urgent and more relevant not not being consumed as well because you've kind of lost the room by the time you get there so you're right the dial test i don't know if they even still do it anymore i doubt it that's from years ago but it, for me it was just a an idea that lodged in my mind that you always need to have in mind that your communications are as good as their weakest link. 
I agree with everything you said. However, I'm going to just Go caveat on. one thing, or rather Go pose on. a question, which isn't to be answered, which is this. Joe Rogan, recognised as the most popular podcast you know, on the planet, he does four hours nonstop. I can't listen the whole way through. As far as I'm concerned, there's a lot of sagging going on there. And yet, he obviously manages to, to hold the audience. Why do you think that is? Well, I think the reason that people listen to broadcasters or podcasters at length is uh, a complex one. And my interest primarily is in how do we pass on information that how do we explain ourselves so the book isn't the art of broadcasting or the book of podcasting the the book is the art of explanation and for me explanation is identifying what information you want to pass on and calibrating that information for the circumstance and the individual or the people that you're trying to communicate with that's a slightly different goal to joe rogan who i don't know him of course but i assume is trying to make a podcast that as many people listen to for as long as possible now Within the style of that podcast, maybe sections that meander, sections that go off subject, sections that have a different pace, sections that sometimes lack direction or purpose, maybe that fits very well with the type of listening experience that people are looking for from him. So I would suggest that slightly different criteria apply. I would also say, and this isn't, you know, I can't emphasize this enough. This book is my effort to capture how I go about it. It's not my effort to say there's only one way of successfully communicating with people and there's only one way of successfully holding their attention. Of course, I don't have a monopoly on that. I don't even assume I'm doing it well. So um, so there are a number of different ways to go about it. I would just say that if you are in the in the business of trying to pass on information effectively and try to get people to give you information in return and potentially take actions in return, then making sure that you don't wane, that there's more flow than there is ebb, is generally a good idea. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Uh, let's move on to the penultimate of your 10 okay. elements, which is being useful, which is basically just asking yourself, 
have I answered people's right. questions? What do people want to know? And have I answered and given them sufficient information? It's unbelievably powerful to stop and ask yourself this before you go into a meeting or send an email or do any type of uh, of work or it doesn't have to be work even in a in a exchange with a school or a doctor or whatever the example might be. If you can stop and think, what would the people I'm about to communicate with want from me and then do your very best to give it to them in a form that's suited to them, they're going to that's going to go down well. That's going to make their life easier because you are giving them the thing that they would like to receive. And it is incredibly powerful to just stop and think. When I go into this meeting, I'm trying to get all these things across, but actually the people I'm meeting, what would they like from me? Or if you take the example of our explainer videos, we often will make a list of all the questions we can think of that either we have or we think the audience has about the subject. And we try and tick every single one off because if one of our videos answers and addresses every question big or small that either you the viewer or us as the people making it would have there's a really high chance that you're going to find that video useful and you're going to want to watch it so just stopping and thinking am i being useful to whoever it is i'm communicating with it's a simple question but i find it incredibly powerful and we're going to talk about knowing your audience in just a moment but finally the cherry on the 10 elements cake which is clarity of purpose coming back to is everything you're saying, is everything I'm saying, is all the information I'm providing supporting the distinct and clear purpose of what I'm trying to achieve? There you go. It's the framework. It's the guide to all of the other decisions and things that we're doing. And if you can be clear on it, it helps all the other decisions that you take. If you're not clear about it, it will lead to muddled thinking. And I think I might mention this in the book. Quite often, we will start working on a subject for our explainer videos or a sequence on the TV, and we'll kind of stop and go, right, we've got a lot of interesting information here, and the story itself or the issue itself is interesting, but what are we actually trying to do? Like, what point are we trying to start at, and where are we trying to take the viewer to? And if we haven't got a good answer to that, we'll stop, and we won't really carry on our work until we've thrashed that out, because once you are clear on the purpose of your piece of communication, everything else lines up behind it. And I'm sure that is something that just doesn't happen anywhere near enough. But once you're aware of it, it's one of those things. It's so obvious how important it is. I think so. And it doesn't need to be, you know, in a lot of day-to-day -day moments, it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, you have to block out half an hour to do this before you send any email or something. It's not. It's more about just checking yourself before you do something and thinking, what's the outcome here? So if you're going into a meeting and you want you'd really like four or five things to happen, but really what actually has to happen for whatever it is, your, whatever idea you're trying to get off the ground, to get off the ground is one other person needs to do one thing just to keep the ball moving. You really need to say, well, actually the purpose of this meeting is to see if I can make the case to that person to do this one thing. All of the other things that I would hope may happen are really secondary to making sure that that's prioritized. And those kind of thoughts can sometimes just take 20 seconds or 10 seconds before you do something. Sometimes they might take a bit longer. Um, you know, when I'm doing a, uh, when I'm being interviewed about this book, for example, I'll often stop before I speak to someone and say, okay, well, going into this interview, what is it that I particularly want to, uh, to get across? So, you know, it's just a good question to keep asking. What's the purpose of what I'm doing? And that leads us neatly to knowing your audience and 
you gave a lovely uh, story in the book about speaking to James Harding, who you described, who basically the former head of BBC News, a very evocative description of him you gave in the book. And you only had 15 minutes with him. That can go very quickly. Absolutely thought, okay, what's he like? I know that you can lose his attention very quickly, so I need to make this count really fast. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is, once you know your audience, once you found out who you who they are, directing your information towards them in, in a lovely analogy, as you say in the book, rock stars who will come out and go, hello, Milton Keynes, you know, <laughs> they don't care, but they're personalizing it. <laughs> yeah. Or who's here from Leeds? Everyone cheers. Who's here from Liverpool? Everyone cheers. Um, I, I'm going back to an earlier point when people feel like you're communicating with them and for them. It's something that we all like. You know, when I used to host a phone-in on BBC World Service, um, I didn't just use to ask general questions like, this event has happened, what do you think about it? I would say, we're all talking about this issue today. If you're listening in Nigeria, what do you think? If you're listening in the US, what do you think? Because when you said specific countries, people tended to respond more because they felt you were talking directly to them. Or you might say, well, I know the Australian government's taken this decision. If you're listening there, do you agree with it? But in America, they've taken a different decision. If you're listening there, do you agree with it? The more you can use techniques to make people feel like you're talking to them, that can be you know, incredibly effective. And to be able to do that, you need to know your audience or at least do your best to know your audience because you can't always know every last detail. Really, that section of the book is advocating that we stop and, and think about what we do know. And sometimes we'll know a lot and sometimes we won't know very much. But any information we can get will then help us calibrate how we talk to the people that we are addressing. So a, a simple example would be I talked at a teacher's conference the other day about the book. And of course, many of the examples that I referenced and the circumstances I imagined were relevant to teaching. Because, of course, that was what the teachers in the room would be interested to hear. It's a simple example. But but knowing who's in your audience is very helpful. It also ties back to what we were talking about earlier. If you've assessed your audience, you can calibrate what level of knowledge to speak to. So if you're speaking to um, uh, at, a, at a conference for military and defense experts, you're not going to have to explain what NATO is because they'll all know what NATO is. If you're speaking to uh, a group of sick formers, for, who are doing a range of different subjects, quite reasonably, many of them will not have a detailed handle on what NATO is. So constantly, the more we calibrate what we do according to the people we're speaking to, the more likely they are going to feel that this is for them and it's being designed for them. And in turn, the more likely they'll be engaged in what you're saying. Okay, listen, we've done the elements of good explanation. We've touched on knowing your audience, those 10 elements. So I'm slightly conscious of time. So you've got your your seven steps to express with clarity too. So rather than go through these, I'm just going to um, give an outline of what they are. So you talk about setting up, distilling the information. So setting up, just compiling all the information from everywhere. So it's this huge amount of information, distilling it down, taking it from this big mass into the, the relevant and the essential bits, organizing it. So moving that, that here and that bit at the top to the middle and the middle to the bottom, and then thinking of different structures. How can I make this A flow to B to C to D? Keeping up momentum, that crucial word momentum, thinking of your high impact elements, starting strong, finishing strong, and then all the linking information, which I want to come back to. But so that was a very quick summary. You do it better, but in about the same length of time. No, I'm, I'm, that was excellent. The only, the only thing I was going to say is that 
before you gather information, you need to do a setup. And the setup is where you pause and think, what am I trying to communicate? Who am I communicating it to? What's the circumstances in which I'm communicating? Uh, you go through the basics of what you're trying to do because that will then frame everything that follows. So you do that first, then you gather information. And then as you described, you get to distill the information, organize the information, link the information together. And then you get onto a stage, my favorite stage, step six, which is Titan, which is remove all of those obstacles to understand it to understanding. And then the final element of it is to to rehearse it, to say it out loud, to make sure you go over what you've prepared, to make sure it fits with what you want to say and how you want to say it. In terms of Titan, you talk about, again, avoiding obstacles to understanding. And I want to get to delivery, which is recognizing that keeping the attention is just as important as what you say is, is kind of how you say, I suppose. But something that you do that I love, which is the whole linking, trailing, you talk about surfacing structure, joining phrases, and you say in the book, while and as are your friends, and you use and. Yes. Because in broadcasting, we talk about the hard stops, you know, you get to the end of a story, you know, and they lost 3-0. Elsewhere, blah, 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 and you've got that gap, and people tend to do that. But you've got, if you watch any of your explainer videos, if you go back, there's none of that ever. You keep that momentum going the whole way through, and anyone who reads this book, go back and watch, and you'll see you do this. So this is particularly skillful. So can you just talk a little bit on this, because I love it. The thing that you're talking about, which I call hard stops, and you've just done a very good example of it, is that often when we are speaking, especially speaking when we've prepared what we're saying, so a presentation or a speech or in a job interview or on the radio, to use your example, we will have a structure that our information is being built to, which is not a problem at all. It's a good idea. But we often tend to pause both between the sections of the structure, and we might also pause between the different elements within those sections of the structure. We will reach the end of a conclusion and kind of go, ah, and then we'll move on. And in structural terms, that makes a lot of sense. So when you're plotting it out, that can make sense. But actually, you don't really want your audience to feel that you've got to the end of something. You know, if you look at broadcasting more generally, think about what happens at the end of a program on the TV the continuity announcer comes on and starts telling you what's coming next. If you listen to commercial radio, they're brilliant at it. As they go into an advert break, they'll always tell you what the tune is or what the feature is coming on the other side of the advert break because they don't want you to go anywhere. They know the dangers that come with hard stops. And I guess I'm saying we all need to be tuned into the dangers of hard stops because that's when you can lose people. And to counter the threat of hard stops, I use what I call joining phrases, which are phrases that help me move from one element to another element and maintain both the, the 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 storytelling connection between that one element and the next and also avoid having any hard stop and there are lots of techniques in the book as you allude to for how you can do it but you're quite right i do use and a lot because if you play let's imagine you play a clip of a politician who says i'm very angry about this i could you know more classically you might say you might just come off that and go We've also heard from the other party who say this. But if you come off the politician saying very angry about this and go, and while that politician's angry about this, this politician, you've immediately come off the back of that clip with more momentum and gone into the next one with more momentum. So, you know, anyone listening can experiment with this. I've put a lot of different ways you can do this. But I'm constantly thinking about how can I take the viewer or listener from wherever we are to wherever we're going without 
there being a moment where we all go, oh, that's the end of this bit. And that's why I've used the word and so much throughout this particular conversation so far. Don't apologize, Simon. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a very, very, very heavy and user and I make no apology for it. And just a quick aside, there was a part in the book that made me chuckle. We don't need to talk about this because this is purely my own experience where you talk about when you've got a radio script and you've got the one line, which means pause, and then two lines, which is dramatic pause. Very useful for any budding radio journalist because yes. I once actually wrote pause in my script and read it out. And then read it out loud. <laughs> so, yes, that's something for people to learn. I just want to talk to you about delivery because we spoke about how to keep the people's attention. And the example you give is of Dean Parks, the musician. Can you just talk to this a little bit? So Dean Parks is a legendary session musician, primarily based in California, I think, or certainly I associate him with <coughs> Los Angeles. And I was aware of his work anyway. There was a, a period in the 1970s, especially where some session musicians in Los Angeles were almost as big as stars as the, as the bands they sometimes played in. And Dean Parks has played with, you know, enormous artists, one of whom is Steely Dan. And Steely Dan, there were two of them in the band, but they were famous for using loads of session musicians and being particularly exacting. And in a documentary about Asia, which is Steely Dan's best-selling album, I think, um, there he is sitting by a pool talking about the experience of being called in. And I was just watching this because I'm into Steely Dan. I wasn't watching this with for any other reason. But as I watched, he started describing the Steely Dan process, which was essentially... He said they were absolute sticklers for detail. So they would rehearse and rehearse and rehearse. And for people who are listening and don't know Steely Dan, they were famous for doing essentially songs that did well, you know, on the radio, in the charts and so on. But with jazz levels of kind of technical brilliance and, and production. And and so they would practice and practice and practice and practice for days. And then Dean Parks, I, I forget the exact phrase, but he essentially says, then they would say, now relax and play it. And I love this, the idea that you would prepare everything to the nth degree, but you also understood that if you just played it to the nth degree, it might just be a bit much. And he uses this great phrase, which I think is, and of course the track needed to be a hit. And I love that, that in and amongst all that attention to detail, Steely Dan also understood they had to create something that you wanted to listen to. And this just resonated so deeply because... It was what I was trying to do with Outside Source, but I hadn't found the way to express it, which was to produce and research and script that program to within an inch of its life, but then make sure I presented it in a way that still felt consumable and relaxed and engaging. And so I wasn't expecting a Steely Dan documentary to kind of open up that for me, but it did. And that's why someone as well said to you, how do you manage to do your whole program unscripted? Because that's how it came across. And then you did the big reveal Every single word is scripted. Every single word of outside source is scripted. I mean, that is a real skill to be able to to make it seem like that, to pull the wool over people's eyes. I wasn't pulling the wool over people's eyes. I was just, I hope, using scripts well. Smoke and mirrors, Ros. But, no, no, but Simon, there's a thing there that was worth emphasising, that I have a, 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 a rule that I'm very strict on, which is that if there's a script I'm using in a video or TV that's not as I would speak, it has to change. No ifs, no buts, always. And if you keep asking yourself when you're preparing, if you're preparing something a bit more formal, like a, a presentation or a speech, just keep saying, would I talk like this? Would I talk like this? And if you apply that all the way through, you'll end up with something that feels much more natural. And I think this is such an important point, actually. I'm glad you brought that up because I've done work for various companies 
let's say in marketing or whatever it may be. And as you know, same in broadcasting, every industry has their own lingo and people talk in that own lingo. And I remember speaking to one company and they wanted to introduce a podcast in a certain way. And I said to them, there was one sentence in particular that was using marketing, businessy jargon. And I said to them, can you just tell me what this sentence means? And none of them could. And I found that fascinating. Like every industry has this knack of slipping into inside speak. And I think the beautiful thing of having worked for Radio 1, and obviously it's something you do brilliantly as well, is having banged into time and again, how would you say it if you were with your mate in the pub or whatever? And it's hard, but simple. Exactly. And that comes down to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, simplicity. You've got to be able to translate your thoughts into something that's simple and consumable. Absolutely. Right. Last couple of things, uh, Roz. And this was the bit where I nudged my wife in bed and said, I've been telling you this for ages. <laughs> which refers back to what we chatted about at the beginning, which you told me 10 years ago. Because I remember you showing me a clip of you on Outside Source asking a correspondent a certain question that she didn't want to answer. I can picture your the expression on your face, actually. It's so vivid in my mind. And she decided she didn't want to answer that, would go off on a tangent, but did it so deftly you never would have noticed. I think this is such a valuable skill. And just before you answer it, I think, you know, politicians do this, but they do this bluntly, quite crudely a lot of the time. You know, their last question, they go, what I'm focused on is delivering jobs, right? So they don't even pretend that they're answering the question. But if you can do it slickly in a way that at least gives the impression that you're doing it, this that's much better. I mean, there are a number of people who I see on the TV, uh, brilliant broadcasters who do this very well. And I don't think, I don't have any problem with it because to use the example uh, that you're remembering, the the question I asked of my colleague was definitely not the best question I could have asked her. And we didn't have very much time in that broadcast for her to get across the stuff that mattered. And so she, it wasn't rude. She just said, uh, you know, she gave a very brief answer to the question I I had asked and then said another thing I would say, Roz, and then she was on to onto on something else. And I think that this is particularly useful when we are in work environments where we're asked uh, questions where we may not have a, a huge amount of detail. I should say, first and foremost, you should acknowledge that. But journalists, a lot of the time, will say things like, especially on breaking stories, what we know at the moment are these two things. There are lots of things we don't know. We'd like to know this, this, and this. So you acknowledge what you know and what you don't know. And I think you can use that technique well outside of journalism. And it's perfectly okay to say when someone asks you a question, well, at the moment, I've only got two details on this. It's X and it's Y. Another area of this subject where we do have more detail, though, is this, where I can tell you A, B, and C. And the, the lesson I suppose I'm trying to get across in the book is having those phrases which allow you to move from subjects you're uncomfortable on to subjects where you're more comfortable they take a bit of practice to use and it's worth experimenting with different phrases, seeing which ones feel comfortable to you, seeing which ones work for you, but not hoping you're randomly or magically going to come up with them in the moment. Certainly I can't. Um, and to think in advance of uh, important moments when you're having to hold difficult conversations or important conversations, think about how you can uh, use those phrases to, to get you to more comfortable territory. Okay, final thing, Roz, and this is just about email. Oh, yeah. You've got this lovely section at the back. Email does my head in because I much prefer speaking. I always say I prefer talking to typing. There's no real decorum around emails. And you've got this fantastic phrase that you did borrow off 
someone else who's an expert in this area. Long emails are an unkind tax. And then the importance of being skimmable. So just can you just give your one minute email masterclass, please? I'll do my best. Well, first of all, that phrase, unkind tax, is from an amazing guy called Professor Todd Rogers, who's also got a brilliant new book out at the moment. And he's a specialist in how we all consume emails and WhatsApps and so on. He has another amazing phrase, which is, no one cares about my email as much as I do, which is, you know, really valuable, valuable life lessons for not just emails, but lots of communication. But essentially, this is my uh, advice on email. Here are some facts of the matter. There's too many emails coming at us. There's too many messages coming at us. We can't read all of them. It's impossible, even if we wanted to. And frankly, most of us don't want to read all the emails that come at us. So you're operating in a very competitive environment. So I have a number of assumptions. The first is there's no guarantee someone's going to read the email you're sending. So you need to tell them very early on what it's about and why it matters. The second is they might not read all the emails. So you're better off keeping it short and putting the important stuff high. The third thing is we all skim emails, so make it skimmable. Use formatting to help people get to the information that they want. Um, the fourth thing I always assume is that this is this is functional. There's no romance here. We are exchanging information, and so make the exchange of that information as easy as you possibly can. Make it easy for people to understand and easy for people uh, to act on. And then the final thing, which really ties back to the bro some broader points we've discussed, is that group emails are much, much harder to make work because coming back to the earlier point, if you don't feel a piece of communication is for you, you're much, much, much less likely to engage in it. And so while group emails are sometimes necessary, when I'm trying to get ideas off the ground or trying to get momentum behind something I'm doing, I would rather send seven individual emails than send a group of seven people one email because I think that by taking the time to communicate with people one-on-one uh, -on -one individually, the chances of them engaging with what I'm saying go through the roof. So, you know, email still matters. And, and when people, when I kind of go, yeah, I've got a whole chapter in my book on email, you can see some people kind of going, really? Um, but it's not necessarily the most exhilarating of communication forms. But actually, if I look back through my working life, some of the most important things that have happened have come from mine and other people's ability to explain things clearly, consumably, and in a way that can easily be acted on. So taking care over them, even though it may not set the blood racing, can actually have a big impact on the outcomes that you get in lots of different areas of your life. I love that chapter, Roz. Um, I've made my wife promise that she's going to read it too. So I thought it was absolutely and utterly compelling, along with the rest of the book. Listen, congratulations. The art of explanation is, is superb. Thank you for... Um, just being such a top bloke over the years and for taking no time to share some of your uh, tools and techniques with me back in the day. And uh, thank you very much for coming on the pod. As expected, it was a joy. And I'm just very grateful that you communicated with your usual clarity and confidence. It was a joy. Well, I'm glad you say that, Simon, because one of the problems of writing this book, which I only realized after I'd started it, is that if you write a book that promises to, you know, show how you can communicate with clarity and confidence, Every single time you communicate in any form, you're setting yourself a very, a very high bar, which I'm acutely aware of every time I do something like this. So fingers crossed it was okay. Well, you've succeeded. Rolls Atkins, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks, Simon.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Life Lessons podcast with Roz Atkins. I highly recommend his book. The link to it's in the show notes. And Roz's viral videos are outstanding. And if you watch one of them, you may notice some of the techniques we discussed in this conversation. If you could consider sharing this episode with, for example, your colleagues, your work team, your friends or your family, as it really may be of benefit, I'd be very grateful. And do get in touch. SimonMundy.com is my website and I'm at SimonMundy on social media. All my links are in the show notes. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.